Um, I'll encourage you, if you brought a Bible, um, you're going to need one, and so you can go ahead and grab that and turn to the Gospel of John. Um, if you uh, didn't bring a Bible or if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardcover one in the, the pew rack in front of you. Feel free to use that. Um, and if you actually don't own a Bible, just take that one with you. We would love for you to have uh, your own Bible. But the Gospel of John, chapter 18, um, we have four chapters left in our series in the Gospel of John, and so that's pretty exciting. We have, uh, this is only week 45, so that's not bad, um, going through this great Gospel. And so we're in these last chapters that, that focus specifically on what is called uh, the Passion Narrative. So in these last four chapters, we're going to see in kind of uh, quick narrative storytelling, we're going to see the arrest and the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And really what this is, is this, this is the climax of the entire gospel. For 18 chapters, we've been kind of building up to these final moments where Jesus accomplishes what he came to do. And so this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the arrest of Jesus. Um, I was thinking a little bit of um, any time something tragic or um, bad happens in the world, um, a lot of times there's newspaper headlines or magazine headlines that specifically blame God or question God. Um, so there was um, a, a shooting in California years ago. Uh, where 14 people were killed, and the Daily News headline, which is a, a magazine in, in California, um, the headline was, God isn't fixing this. And it had some quotes from people who were saying, you know, we're praying for the victims of so-and-so, we're praying for them. And the headline of that newspaper was, God isn't fixing this. So essentially, stop praying. It's not doing anything. Um, and then, you know, even more years ago, if you remember when... Um, I believe it was in India when the tsunami came and, and just caused such utter devastation. I, I remember one of the magazine or newspaper, one of those, the headline that showed the picture of the devastation, and then the, the headline was, where was God? Question mark. And so you can probably think of your own kind of examples when, uh, when bad things happen or tragic things. Maybe it's not like magazine headlines. Maybe it's your own thoughts where you go, where was God? God isn't fixing this. Why is this happening? This is not fair. Or, you know, I thought God was all loving and all powerful. Why isn't he, he doing anything to stop this? So in our text today, it's really fascinating. Um, we're going to see the arrest of Jesus. And so really there's two questions that I want to wrestle with today as we just work through this text. One is, is God sovereign over the bad things that happen? Is God in control of even the bad things that happen in our lives and in human history? And, then, and we want to answer that. And then the second question is, then how do you and I respond in the midst of the bad things? So we're going to see from uh, the arrest of Jesus from two vantage points. So what I want to do is just read uh, verses 1 through 14, and then we want to just kind of do an overview from the vantage point of um, the human beings in this text. Specifically, I'm talking about like Judas, the guards, the disciples. And then we want to take another pass through and look at the arrest of Jesus from the perspective of Jesus, because you'll, you'll see 
there's two very different perspectives uh, of what's going on, and they help us answer those questions. So John 18, uh, let me start reading in verse 1. If you remember, Jesus just finished the upper room discourse, uh, the high priestly prayer. He's just taught his disciples for the last time. He's prayed for them. And then verse 1 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The reading of God's word. So what we want to do is, like I said, take two passes through this. And the first pass, we want to examine the arrest of Jesus just from the, the strictly human point of, of view. So we want to we look at it from Judas, the soldiers, the disciples. What was their point of view from what was happening. And then we want to go back and say, okay, well, what, what was Jesus' point of view of all of this? So um, it, right at the beginning, we're told that Jesus goes um, to the garden across the brook Kidron. So this is the garden of Gethsemane, right? John leaves out different uh, aspects of what took place in the garden. If you remember Jesus, um, he uh, weeps and he weeps drops of blood in the garden and he's praying and his disciples fall asleep. John just kind of passes over all of that. But we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're told that Judas, if you remember, Judas has gone, he's betrayed Jesus, he's found a way to, you know, make some money off of betraying Jesus, and we're told that Judas, in verse 3, procures a band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're, they're coming to the Garden of Gethsemane with lanterns and torches and weapons, now, most of us, because before this week, I assumed this as well, we assume that, Ju that Judas just grabbed kind of a small group of Jewish people and soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. And if you've seen any kind of film or TV adaptation of this account, it's always like, yeah, Judas shows up with 10 guys or whatever, right? It just seems like a very small number of people who come to arrest Jesus 
But what we actually have going on here is you have Rome and Israel working together against Jesus already. So many of us assume that it was just the Jews who arrested, and then they took them, uh, took Jesus, and then Rome got involved. Rome's already involved in the arrest of Jesus. And this is why I know this. Verse 3, it says, Judas procured a band of soldiers. That word band is the Greek word spera, and it's uh, literally a technical term for a, uh, a cohort of Roman soldiers. A spera literally means a tenth of a legion of Roman soldiers, 600 men. So that kind of changes your image of what what was taking place. You have trained Roman soldiers and the temple guard. Those were the, the, the officers from the chief priests, right? They had their own temple guard. And then you, you have some Pharisees as well. So what you actually have is Jesus and his 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you have a mob of over 600 people coming to arrest him, carrying lanterns and torches, so it's a different scene in, our, in our, our minds, like fully trained Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. And it's so fascinating to me that they're carrying lanterns and torches because, you know, you ask, did they think Jesus was going to be hiding? Were they, were they thinking that they were going to have some kind of manhunt? We've got to track Jesus down. He's a wanted man, so it's dark outside. We've got to have light to be able to, to find him. They're carrying weapons which, again, are they expecting an armed resistance? You would think so, having 600 Roman soldiers to arrest someone. that They were probably expecting, like, here we go, there's this uprising, and Jesus is leading this, this revolt against Rome, so we got to be prepared. And so here you have the world, represented by the Romans, and you have the religious leaders, represented by the chief priests and the Pharisees, actually united already against Jesus, you have an armed mob of over 600 people against a peaceful preacher and miracle worker. Like knowing like the 10,000 foot view, it's actually quite a comical scene where you go, Jesus, like we know that Jesus is not going to put up a fight. Why are you sending so, this is such overkill, Judas. Peter's response in verse 10 is also interesting, right? After there's this back and forth between Jesus and the mob, uh, Peter pulls out his sword, probably just kind of a small dagger, and cuts the high priest's servant's ear off. Um, it's interesting that John specifically names him because he's probably telling people, go ask him. His name's Malchus. He was there. But so here, here's what's going through Peter's mind. Remember, the disciples all along, they had a very Jewish worldview of the Messiah, and their worldview of the Messiah was that he was going to be a revolutionary. He was going to come, and he was going to overthrow Rome and kill all their enemies and then establish the kingdom of Israel again. And so all along, they were kind of ready for this go time, like, Jesus, now are you going to... Are we going to, you know, kill all the Romans? And so I bet that Peter saw what was happening, right? And already Peter, in previous uh, accounts with Jesus, he said things like, well, I'm never going to let that happen to you, Jesus. I'll die for you. We'll never let them arrest you. And so here he has all of these Roman soldiers. And I bet you anything that Peter was like, it's go time, right? Ah! And he just, it's just so Peter, right? It's like, what are you going to do? There's a 12 of you, Peter, 
And yet he just pulls out his sword and chops off the ear. And I'm sure that he thought, now's the time. Jesus, lead the revolt. Let's do it. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Right, actually, in a, in a different gospel account, it, uh, the writer adds, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Peter, put your sword away. Uh, and Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? Like, Peter, are you really going to overthrow God's plan from the beginning? And so the soldiers arrest Jesus. They lead him to Annas and Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was the high priest. And, and there's, you just might find this interesting. You go, why is Annas and Caiaphas mentioned? Because Annas had been the high priest, but he had been essentially kicked out by the Romans in A.D. 15. And uh, Caiaphas was his son-in-law who became the high priest. But many people uh, in that day and age viewed Annas as the true high priest. Right, He was the patriarch over the whole priestly family, and so he was still very involved. And so really, Annas and Caiaphas and the, the chief priests are the ones who are behind the arrest of Jesus. Right, Rome's involved, but it's the Jewish leaders who are behind it. And again, I want you just to, to remember this. The high priest, it, it was seen as the supreme interpreter and representative of the Most High God. He was seen as the, mo- as the one who was closest to God. He was the one that went into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer s- sacrifices. And this is the man who condemned Jesus, God in the flesh. So you can, you can see the blindness that was, was taking place. So he, on this first path, from a strictly human point of view, what do we have? We have immense evil at work. You have a mob of soldiers, 600 Roman guards. You have expected violence, right? You could probably feel the tension in the air. You have the response from the disciples, which is, okay, we got to respond in violence. We're going to attack, right, and cut off someone's ear. What I see from, if you were there from just a strictly human point of view, it probably seemed chaotic. It was probably unbelievably tense, Right? You could just feel the evil at work. Your leader, Jesus, the Messiah, being arrested and, and carried off. So that's the human point of view. We get a very different vantage point from Jesus. So first off, Jesus leads them to the garden. And we're told that this was a place that Judas knew very well. So f- first off, notice that, Ju- that, that Jesus isn't like, Uh, I'm going to be arrested, so let's go into hiding. It's like, Jesus, you go to the place that everyone knows that you go to. (laughs) He goes to the garden where he knows that Judas will know that he's there. So one, you see Jesus not trying to hide. He goes to the place where he knows he'll be found. He doesn't attempt like, uh, okay, let's go to a different garden. Let's stay in the upper room. No one knows we're here. He specifically takes them to a place where he'll be very easily found. And then in verse 4, we get this amazing little statement. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. So this is huge. Jesus is the one who initiates in this whole account. He's the one who actually approaches the mob. He actually comes forward. No one's like, oh, hey, I found Jesus hiding in this part of the garden. Come quick. Right? Jesus is the one that walks towards them. 
he comes forward out of the garden to, to meet them. And, and John says that Jesus knew everything that would happen to him. Now, we have to understand this means more than just Jesus kind of understood all the steps in the process as it unfolded. It's not as if Jesus knew like, well, most likely I'm going to be arrested and then most likely they'll probably put me on trial because that's just what happens. No, it goes so far beyond that. Jesus ahead of time knew everything that would happen to him from this point on. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Um, what, the vantage point that we get from Jesus' point of view is that he is firmly in control of the entire situation. And here's why I think that, too. The next scene is unbelievable, right? Jesus is the one that initiates. He comes forward. He comes. He's not hiding. He comes to the mob of six, 700 people, and he says, well, who are you looking for? And they reply, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am he. But literally, in the Greek, he replies, I am. Ego, I may which we've seen this multiple times in John, haven't we, right? And people lose their minds when Jesus says, I am. Why? Because he's saying the, the proper name of God. He's saying Yahweh, right? The, the clearest example is in John 8 when he's talking with the religious leaders and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they all pick up stones because they're saying, blasphemy, you can't say that. So here again, we have Jesus saying, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And he simply two words, right? I am. And what happens? They all fall on the ground. Isn't that amazing? Not, not eight guys who came to arrest Jesus. 600 trained Roman soldiers fall over on the ground when Jesus says two words. Literally, bowled over. And falling to the ground in Scripture is a common reaction to divine revelation. When God shows up, um, people often fall over. What else would be your response? <laughs> right? Ezekiel 128, Ezekiel has a vision. It says this, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Remember uh, Saul on the way to, to go and persecute Christians in Acts 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Even in Revelation 1, um, John has a vision of Jesus, of the Son of Man. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, when people come face to face with God, the 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 common response is you fall over as if you've been killed. Same here. Jesus utters two words, I am, and the mob falls over. So what we have here is a display of the power and control of Jesus. I, I don't know what happened. Like, did they see something? Did light shine? We, we're not told. Jesus simply just says, ego, I may, I am, and the mob falls down. And I... And I think one of the reasons this is so important is, one, Jesus is firmly in control, and two, it shows us that Jesus was not apprehended unwillingly, right? If you remember back in John 10, Jesus says this, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, right? 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my father. Jesus is arrested not because, oh man, those, those chief priests are so cunning. They figured it out. They, they hatched a brilliant plan. No, Jesus was arrested because he allowed himself to be arrested. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He willingly lays it down. And I think he's showing us, I mean, 600 Roman guards, that would terrify any of us, right? And he just says, I am. And they all fall over as if dead, right? Jesus is firmly in control of what's, what's happening. And so in verse 7, he says it again. I think this is just so funny. I, you know, we, we often don't think that Jesus maybe had a sense of humor, but I think he did. Whom do you seek? Jesus. I am. Whom do you seek? <laughs> Isn't that great? And so the same thing. And, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I told you that I am he. And then he says, so if you seek me, let these men go. And we're told this was to fulfill that Jesus didn't lose any of his disciples. He, didn't, he protected them until the end. He says, if you're going to arrest me, arrest me. Let these disciples go. And it actually, the way it's worded, it's actually, it comes across as a command. He's not saying like, if you want me, please let my disciples go. He says, if you came to arrest me, command, let these men go. And they do. None of the disciples are arrested, even after Jesus, or um, after uh, Peter's violent outburst. He's not even arrested. And can we just say, the, the, also the comic touch is that Peter tries to intervene with his little dagger, right? Jesus just knocked them all over. I am, and they all fall over, and then they're going to arrest Jesus. Well, I'll protect you, Jesus. And he, it's like Peter, oh, Peter's so great, right? His heart, I think, is in the right place. But it's like, Peter, Jesus clearly does not need your help. Like, put your sword away. It's not going to do anything. Jesus is firmly in control, right? God is, God is sovereign over everything that's happening. This is not like, ah, Jesus got taken by surprise. He didn't see it coming. We're told he knows everything that's going to happen, he can just knock them all over if he wanted to, and he, and he did. And then he says, right, Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He, he goes, the Father's planned this. I'm obviously going to go through with it. So, like I said at the beginning, two, two big questions we want to wrestle with. Um, first, is God in control and sovereign over even the bad things that happen. Because if, if we're just honest, the arrest of Jesus, right, his trial, his beating, his crucifixion, it was a wicked thing that took place. Jesus actually is the only truly innocent person that ever lived. So here you have the only truly innocent man and this wickedness that is happening to him. Like, it was an act of pure evil. But it says that Jesus knew everything Jesus was, uh, was fully in control of everything that, that, that happened. It wasn't a surprise to, to God that this took place. And so then here's the wrestle, right, if we're honest. If God is sovereign and he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful and if, if we do believe that, that he's in control, that there's no surprises, that he knows everything, then, then how and why do these bad things happen? How can God be in control if all of these, these terrible things, the, the tsunami, where was God, right? The, the shooting, you know, God's not fixing this. Your own life, cancer, divorce, like whatever it is, you can go, God, are you really in control of this? It just feels like, like you're not. 
So this is a real wrestle. What I want to do is just give you two examples from the Old Testament and then one from the New that just shows that even in the midst of the, the, the confusion and the mystery of it, God is firmly in control. Many of you know the story of Joseph, right? If you know, Joseph um, had a bunch of brothers, and uh, I'm going to try and condense this, right? Joseph shared some dreams to his brothers, and they got so mad that they wanted to kill him, but instead they just kind of threw him into a pit, told the dad Joseph's dead, and then they sold him into slavery, right? So, they, so he's, been, he's been given into slavery. He goes to, to Potiphar's house. He uh, is, you know, well accepted, and then he gets accused of rape. And no one believes him that he's innocent, so he gets thrown into jail, and he's in a jail cell rotting. And then finally, right, he, he catches the Pharaoh's eye, and he can interpret dreams, and this is amazing. He rises to power, you know, second in command in Egypt. And then, and, then, and then his brothers come back into the scene because of the famine that's going on. And then Joseph kind of reveals, like, look, it's, it's me. And this is what it says in Genesis 45. Joseph is speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, who wished that he was dead, and he says this, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me. Wait, I thought the brothers sold him into slavery. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for, uh, and to keep alive for you many survivors. Look at what Joseph says. It was not you who sent me here, but God. We go, well, that's interesting. Joseph, like, it was your brothers who sold you into awful, wicked things that they did. And Joseph said, no, it was God who sent me here. Even in Genesis 50, he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want you to be, I want to be really clear. Joseph didn't say, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. No, he says, God meant it. Meaning God was the one who was in control of it. It wasn't as if God said, oh, those brothers, I can't believe they did that. Okay, I'm going to try and like rework this for good. No, God meant it to happen. He was over it. Like he, he, he was in control of it. And so notice Joseph's theology. He says, yeah, actually, you brothers, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. God was in control. The other example, if you think about uh, Pharaoh, um, we're told that, right, all the Israelites find favor in Egypt through Joseph, and, and they kind of have a safe haven, and they're allowed to live there, and then, and then the Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh uh, comes to power, and it says very quickly the favor that the Israelites had went away, and they became slaves, and evil men in Egypt turned on the Israelites. But when you read Psalm 105, I find it interesting. This is the description the psalmist gives. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes, the Egyptians. He, God, turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So you go, what, what happened? Did the new Pharaoh a a a hate the Israelites? Yeah, absolutely. But God says, but actually it was me turning his heart to hate the Israelites, as part of my sovereign plan. And so Egypt committed 
evil against Israel, and they, they just were awful to them. And then Moses comes, right, this great deliverer, Moses. And, and I'm trying to do this quickly, right? You can just read uh, the story in the beginning of Exodus. But Moses comes, and there's battle between him and Moses, right, and the ten plagues. And throughout that account, 19 times in those chapters, it talks about Pharaoh's hard heart. 16 out of those 19 times, it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and three times it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So you go, well, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart to hate the Israelites, or did God harden his own heart? And the answer is yes. Both. And, and we see that Pharaoh, he, he doesn't say, well, it's not my fault. God, it's God doing it, so I'm off the hook. No, Pharaoh's held accountable for his wickedness, and yet God, not committing evil himself, he is sovereign over evil to accomplish his good purposes. I mean, we could spend all day, there are so many examples when God says, I- I'm going to raise up Babylon to actually punish Israel. And you go, well, that doesn't seem fair. Like, that's the whole book of Habakkuk. Wait, God, that doesn't seem fair that you would do that. And God says, you don't even know what I'm doing behind the scenes. If I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't even believe it. Then you get to the crucifixion, which I think is the clearest example of God's sovereignty over sinful human beings, and yet their responsibility for their actions. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this amazing sermon, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, look at this, delivered up according to to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held at by it. And so you go, well, which is it, right? Did God have a definite plan and foreknowledge of the crucifixion of Jesus? Was it in his sovereign plan? Yes. Or did men kill Jesus? Yes. Both are true. And our human brains, we go, they both can't be true. It doesn't make any sense. But we see Jesus firmly in control. The crucifixion was according to the plan of God before the foundation of the world, and yet the men who did it are still held responsible. And the Gospels, Jesus multiple times, he shows that he knows exactly what's going to happen. How many times... Did Jesus say to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be crucified, and then three days later I'll, ri- I'll rise from the dead. Multiple times Jesus gives that level of detail to his disciples. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, the chief priests are going to arrest me, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'll be raised from the dead. This is years before it happened. Jesus is saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knew who his betrayer was, Right? He says, whoever dips the bread in the cup is my betrayer, and Judas does. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. Even in the other gospel accounts, when Judas comes and he, and he greets Jesus with a kiss, right, and Jesus says to him, friend, do what you came to do. He doesn't go, what? I did not expect you, Judas. He says, Judas, do what you came to do. He knew what was going to happen. And so in our text this morning, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen, 
Now, there's two errors that we make when we try and remove this tension, because you should be feeling this tension right now of trying to hold both things. Is God sovereign over everything? Yes. Are we still held accountable for the decisions we make? Yes. And so there's this tension where you go, okay, both are true. The Bible teaches both. But there's two errors when, when we try and just remove that tension and try and explain it fully. The error number one is, is fatalism, where you can just go, okay, well then fine. Everything's predetermined. None of my actions matter. We're all robots. Nothing I do matter. I actually don't have any choice. The Bible doesn't teach that, right? So when you think about the sovereignty of God, don't try and figure it out to the point where you go, everything is predetermined, fatalism, nothing matters. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Now, the other error is when you swing the other way, and there's this kind of theology called open theism, which sadly is actually growing in churches, this idea that God loves, His love for us means that He desires for you to have unlimited free will so that he actually makes his, his knowledge and the plans for the future conditional upon your actions. Do you get what I'm saying? What that means is that God, because he loves you so much, he just like limits his power and he doesn't know the future. That's a growing trend in evangelical Christianity, that God, he knows everything, but he doesn't really know everything, right? And, and it's this idea that he, he, he doesn't know what you will freely do in the future. So what are you going to go and have for lunch after this? God doesn't know that yet because you haven't done it yet, right? It's an attempt to answer the tension of how can God be sovereign and yet my choices matter. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible, and, and this is the, a frustrating part and actually a beautiful part, the Bible and God is happy to leave those two things in tension. God is in control of everything that happens. And you still have a responsibility to make decisions and you're held accountable for the decisions you make. Both are true at the same time. And I think we see that in the arrest of Jesus. So the answer to the first question, is God sovereign over the bad things that happen? Yes. And the second question is, well, then how do we respond in the midst of the bad things? And in my experience in the trials and things that I've gone to, the more that you lean into the sovereignty of God in the, mix, in the midst of hard things, the more that it actually anchors you. When I go through hardship and pain and bad things and I know that God is in control, I might not never know why it's happening, but I know that He's in control. But we often respond like Peter, don't we? Things are getting out of hand, Jesus. I guess I have to take it into my own hands. I'm going to pull my dagger out and I'm going to do something because, God, clearly you're not in con control. We, we all do that, where we just kind of hit the panic button and we're like, well, God's, God's not doing anything. This is, all these terrible things are happening. I better jump in and, and just kind of fix it. I'm going to take my dagger and fix the situation because Jesus isn't doing anything. And we panic, don't we, when, when we're faced with bad things and trials and pain and hardship. But listen, when you actually rest in the sovereignty of God, um, it, it actually anchors you through the, the trial and the pain. You might not ever know why God allowed it to happen. 
So, I mean, I mean, even many of you know, about a year ago, I was in a, a plane crash where a, a float plane landed in a lake kind of upside down, and I was in that float plane. And um, should have died, but by God's grace, He spared me. But let's say that I had died. I know what would be said. Oh, it was a tragic accident, and He was gone too soon. Wrong. If I had died in that plane crash, it's because the Lord Jesus said, Andrew's life is finished. And we might, we might buck against that and go, oh, I don't like that. Okay, fine. But God is sovereign, right? And he can, he can decide to do that, and he is totally just in doing that. And I remember being in the plane underwater and thinking that I was about to die and, and actually just resting in God's sovereignty and going, okay. I actually joke with my wife and she's like, you're kind of morbid because I had the thought of like, I've heard that drowning is a peaceful way to die. And she's like, why would you think thoughts like that? But it, it was a, a resting if, if God decides Andrew's life is done at 35, he has every right to do that. Okay. It's not a tragic accident. It's the sovereignty of God. And we may, we, we may never know the why. Why did he do that? We may never know. But we know what the answer isn't, right? When, when you go through cancer or where you go through a divorce or where you go through losing a loved one or you go through a, a, a wayward child and you're praying and you're going, why is this happening, God? You may never know the why, but I can tell you what the answer isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love you. Because look to the cross. Every time you experience pain and suffering and you go, why? Look to the cross. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at his character. Look at his power. Remind yourself, well, I know it's not because he doesn't love me. Look what he did for me. And that's what actually brings you through pain and, and suffering. Resting in the sovereignty of God. Because either God is sovereign over it or we serve a God that's just weak and he, he, he's not in control. And then if that's true, then you're just kind of left on your own. Is that actually better? Well, at least God's not in control. Well, then you're just on your own. It's actually better that you go, I don't understand why, but I know that he hasn't left me. So as we're going to see, as we walk through the arrest of Jesus and in the weeks to come, we're going to see his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus was firmly in control of everything that took place. And God was using it to accomplish his good purposes, the, the redemption of mankind. And so you and I, when we encounter and we go through hard things and evil and bad things and just brokenness, you can actually trust the sovereignty and control of God. God is in control in the midst of it. What so-and-so means for evil, God means for good. He's going to walk with me through those hard times. He hasn't abandoned you. And God is accomplishing His purposes in the midst of it, so you can actually just rest in His sovereignty. So, Father, I just thank You for your pa uh, this passage this morning. I'm always encouraged by Your Word. Um, God, I know Your sovereignty and, and our free will, it's such a debatable topic, when in reality, God, the Bible just seems to allow this tension to exist. Where God, you are sovereign. You are sovereign over everything in the universe. You're in control. 
And yet our decisions matter, and we're held accountable for the things we do and don't do. And, and that doesn't negate your sovereignty. And so, God, I think we see in the arrest of Jesus both things at work. We see Judas scheming and 600 Roman soldiers and the chief priests who, who, who were held accountable for what they did. They crucified the Son of God, and yet all in the midst of it, we see you, Jesus, firmly in control. You knew everything that would happen. You knocked over the whole mob with two words. You allowed yourself to be arrested. You allowed these things to happen in your power and in your sovereignty. And so, God, I just pray that we would be people who just rest in the mystery of that, that we wouldn't try and solve it, that we would just rest, especially when we go through pain and hardship and trial and suffering and bad things, that we wouldn't go, oh no, God's not in control. Oh no, all these terrible things are happening. But that we would go, I don't know why these things are happening, but I know that God is in control. I know that he is accomplishing his purposes. I know that he hasn't abandoned me. I know that he loves me because look at what Jesus has done for me. So just do your work in our hearts, Jesus, that we would be people that just trust that and rest in that, and that when hardship comes, that we would be people who actually lean into your sovereignty, sovereignty knowing that you're in control, that you are all-powerful, and that we know your character, that you are wholly good and loving and gracious and merciful, and that we would trust you in the midst of those times. And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus, amen.